thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist, the program that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. With me, Chris Smith. Coming up this week, how doctors in the US have cured a woman with HIV. Does Venus have volcanoes? Re-examining 30-year-old probe footage has got scientists wondering. And signs that an artificial sweetener can affect the immune system. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. A woman in America has become the fourth person to be potentially cured of HIV when she underwent an immune cell transplant procedure to treat a blood cancer that she'd also developed. Speaking at a press conference as the results were unveiled, UCLA infectious diseases specialist Yvonne Bryson, who led the team treating the patient, was cautiously optimistic about the results. We have not been able to detect virus in the blood and also her cells are resistant now. She's clinically healthy, free of both cancer and HIV, and we are calling this a possible cure, waiting on a longer period of follow-up. Now, three male patients have previously been also described as cured of HIV in a similar way. One of them, Adam Castileo, who's dubbed the London patient, was on this programme two years ago alongside Cambridge Infectious Diseases Dr Ravi Gupta, who was one of the team who helped to effect his cure. Well, Ravi's back with us today to explain a bit more about this announcement that's come from the US. But before we get into what they've done, Ravi, can you tell us why is HIV so hard to cure, in inverted commas, in the first place? So one of the hallmarks of uh, HIV is that it actually, as part of its life cycle, integrates itself or becomes part of your genetic material in the immune cells which it's infecting. And that makes it really hard to remove it. The only way that uh, the virus's code can be removed is by the cell dying. And so that's why the, the virus is really, really hard to cure. It can be controlled, but it's really hard to remove genetic material from all of your cells. And when you cured Adam, how did you do that? Well, Adam was living with HIV and uh, his immune system had suffered quite badly. And uh, as a result, he developed a cancer that needed a a transplant uh, in order to cure it, what we call an unrelated stem cell transplant, where the cells from another person are used to um, replace uh, Adam's own blood cells. But to do that, you've got to remove Adam's own immune system and blood cells using chemotherapy, which can be quite dangerous. So the interesting thing that was achieved, was, which is that we uh, found a donor who had a special mutation in one of the target proteins for HIV, and that mutation allows you to become resistant to HIV. And we replaced uh, Adam's cells with these new cells that not only cured his cancer, but also made him resistant to HIV. Is that mutation naturally present in the population then? There are people out there who are naturally resistant to HIV. 
Yes, so uh, in particular, Europeans uh, have uh, this mutation called the Delta 32 mutation. Around 1% of Caucasians will have both of their copies um, uh, mutated. Uh, uh, and so that's one in 100, which uh, across millions of people uh, amounts to a fair number of potential donors. And they're uninfectable. That's right. They're uninfectable with the strain of HIV that commonly circulates. There are ver- vari- variations of HIV that will get around that mutation, um, but they're less common than the standard variant. And so in Adam's case, by giving him cells that make it bone marrow and cells that therefore make an immune system that have or carry those changes, he ends up with a new immune system that cannot be infected with HIV. That's right. So we believe the cancer chemotherapy also helps to kill the HIV-infected cells and actually then the new cells that come in cannot be infected and so you end up with a situation where the infected cells have died and there are no new possibilities for infection of fresh cells. The paper that's been published in the journal Cell with Yvonne Bryson, who we heard at the beginning there, uh, describing how they've cured their patient, this woman, the first woman, to effect a cure... They're saying they've done it slightly differently than your approach. They're using what they call umbilical cord blood stem cells. So what's the difference? The stem cells that we were using were from adult donors. The paper that we're discussing here um, involved uh, umbilical cord cells. So uh, these are cells from uh, from babies or neonates, um, uh, and they are taken uh, for future use potentially um, for either themselves or other individuals for the purpose of curing uh, various diseases, including cancers. So the difference there is that you're taking uh, similar cells but from much younger humans. But apparently they're, they're much more comfortable grafting their way into a person who's a less close match. I think that's the attraction, isn't it, of using those cord blood cells? Yes, apparently that's right. So, so you, can, you can get away with a, a poorer match if you use those types of cells. So what are the implications of this now? This is patient potentially number four. The main implications are, first of all, it shows that you can achieve cure in different ways. Secondly, it shows that the CCR5 gene target is a really important one because we've now had four examples. And then I think there's an interesting sort of racial sort of um, uh, slant to this, which is that with this new approach, um, I'm quite pleased to see that actually you can expand the number, you know, the sort of people who could benefit from a cure or a curative approach. And that really, I think, is really important in this day and age where, you know, the vast burden, the vast majority of, 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 of um, in people living with HIV are not in Europe anymore. So, so I think that's important for us. There's some 38 million people currently infected with the disease and we've cured four of them. Do you, do you think this is a realistic prospect as, as a way forward or is this just of academic interest and great news for the people for whom it works but it's really beyond the reach of those 38 million? Most uh, treatments start out uh, being tested in in small numbers uh, in what we call pilot studies and and so you might sort of see this as a pilot study of an, a test of principle and of course what we really want to do is to be able to to take cells mutate them to make them resistant to HIV and then give them to a person living with HIV but without giving them strong chemotherapy that can weaken their immune system and make them vulnerable to um, quite dangerous infections. So we're, you know, that's the, the immune suppression side of this is, is really where, where the next kind of frontier is going to be. Well, I was going to ask you that because surely doesn't this now say, well, well the next step would be to, to get stem cells from a person, their own stem cells that haven't, we can prove they haven't got HIV in them, and then just just do gene editing. I say just, making it sound really easy, but we've got the tools now to genetically engineer the sort of changes into a person's cells to make it as though they were naturally a carrier 
of that, this CCR5 Delta 32 mutation that gives you the resistance to HIV. That's a, an excellent point. So that's uh, been the focus of intensive research over the last decade or more, where people have tried different gene editing, editing strategies to, to do uh, the thing you're saying, which is to, to make the mutation. The difficulty has been the efficiency of that editing has been one of the frontiers. So if you take 100 cells, maybe only 80 of them would get edited, and so you'd still have 20 that were normal. And what would happen is if you put those back into a person, that those 20 potentially could take over in the patient, and then therefore that patient would still be uh, susceptible to HIV. So it's, it's about getting from 80% um, editing efficiency to 99.999. So there's some way to go, but it's exciting all the, all the same, isn't it? Absolutely, very exciting for me. Ravi, thanks very much. And uh, the results of the UCLA study that we were talking about there have just been published in the journal Cell. Despite Venus being as close to us as Mars is, much less is known about its surface and its inner workings, and that's because Venus is a really hostile environment. The atmosphere is 100 times thicker than Earth's, which makes peering through the gloom and studying the surface with things like satellites very difficult. And the high temperatures, which are hot enough to melt lead on the surface, also mean that most probes we send down there will just cook. In fact, the longest any man-made structure has lasted on Venus is two hours. But now, by revisiting 30-year-old images of the surface of Venus, scientists from Alaska Fairbanks University have discovered two photos, taken eight months apart, that show an apparent lava flow coming out from one of Venus' volcanoes. So how much light does this shed on how Venus operates? Will Tingle asked Open University planetary geologist David Rothery to take a look at the findings for him. I've lost track of how many times active volcanism has been discovered, in quotes marks, on Venus. And this was just another attempt to see if anything had changed in an eight-month period that was possible by the repeated imagery. Venus's surface is clearly young. There are plenty of places where there are lots of lava flows and volcanoes. and It's not been blasted to smithereens by impact craters coming in. It's clearly a young surface. But how young? This has been a debate. And if, if it's all relatively young, surely some of it should still be erupting today. After all, the Earth, same size, mass and density of Venus, has got plenty of active volcanoes. Purely for uh, the listeners at home, not me at all, do volcanoes work the same way on Venus as they do on Earth? Well, Venus is Earth-like in terms of its gravity, size, mass and density. So you're melting the same kind of stuff. It's got a much denser atmosphere, 90 times denser than ours, and that also a much hotter surface, about 400 Celsius all the time. So if molten rocks rise to the surface and start to spread out like a lava flow, they'll cool down slower than they will on the Earth. If the rocks erupt explosively, which is hard to do because the denser atmosphere confining the volcanic gases, but if they do erupt explosively, you can get a sustained eruption column with convection going on, but it won't reach as high as it would on the Earth. But you can get convecting eruption columns like you get on Volcanoes in Indonesia lately, for example, have been eruption columns on volcanoes there. So many of the processes volcanologically on Venus are very similar to Earth and more similar to Earth than on an atmosphereless body like Mercury or a body with very little atmosphere like Mars. So Venus is going to be the best analogue elsewhere in our solar system for finding volcanic processes that in all stages look very similar to Earth's. What does this apparent volcanic activity signify about the planet? Well, Venus, although it's the same size, mass and density as the Earth, is behaving perplexingly differently. Earth gets most of its heat out through plate tectonics, 
Warm stuff rises at mid-ocean ridges, cools down, forms an oceanic plate, which then disappears below the continents at a subduction zone, like the ring of fire around the Pacific, and those volcanoes are an indirect manifestation of plate tectonics. That's the Earth's heat engine transporting the Earth's heat outwards. It doesn't work that way on Venus. We don't have young plates forming and cold plates descending, so far as we can see. All the heat is either getting out through just conduction or through hot spots where the volcanoes are, op are operating. And finding out the balance of how this is happening and whether it goes on at a steady state on Venus or whether it's episodic. There was a theory a decade or so ago that Venus had a sort of rigid lid which kept all the heat in and then every few hundred million years it overturned in a vast orgy of global resurfacing. That would be very catastrophic. And that's gone out of fashion now. And people are saying, no, it probably erupts here and it erupts there. And we have to use special pleading to understand why they can't see particularly young regions and particularly old regions manifested by the number of impact craters they can count. So it's not well understood. So there are some very important differences between the global heat transport outwards on Venus and the global heat transport outwards on the Earth. And it's understanding why these two planets, which should be the same, but aren't are so different and yet so similar. That's the fascination of doing volcanology on Venus. So by better understanding what's going on in terms of the volcanic activity, we might be able to get a better look at what's going on under the hood, as it were. Absolutely. Looking under Venus's hood, that's a good strap line for a talk. I might try it once. <laughs> that's all yours. So what's next then? Is it, as you say, there's a few more flights going past Venus. Are they hoping to shed a bit more light? There are two NASA missions slated to go to Venus soon. There's Da Vinci and there's Veritas. There's a European one, Envision. So after many decades of nothing concentrating on Venus's surface, we now have a fleet of spacecraft going there and we'll have better radar mapping of the surface. So we're going to understand Venus much better. And there's exciting hints that have been building up over the past 30 years that there is ongoing volcanic activity. Well, we'll be able to really test those. And if in eight years' time, we don't know for sure whether or not there's volcanic activity on Venus, I'll be very surprised. I think these missions are going to clinch it for us. Very exciting. Set our watches for eight years' time then? Something like that, yeah. David Rothery speaking on that paper that was just published in the journal Science. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. And still to come, the rare mussels that climb up riverbanks to squirt their babies into the mouths of waiting fish. But first... High doses of the artificial sweetener sucralose, which is 600 times sweeter than sugar but yields zero calories when you eat it, reduce immune responses in mice. Karen Valston and Fabio Zani have found that the agent seems to affect the signals produced by immune T-cells when they try to activate themselves to fight infections. They haven't looked in humans yet to see if the same thing could be happening in us, but if it is... In fact, it might be possible to use sucralose to control certain autoimmune diseases where the immune response inappropriately turns against the body itself. Our lab's been interested in the impact of diet on disease for quite a while now. and We've been looking at how different components of our diet might be modulated for therapy. 
And as you know, across the globe, the consumption of sweeteners is increasing rapidly, and careful studies by many regulatory agencies have shown them to be safe at the normal levels of consumption. Now, our study doesn't contradict these findings. However, in recent years, there have been reports that sweeteners may have more effects than previously thought. So we carried out a study to look at the effects of some of these sweeteners in mice. And how did you do it, Fabio? We looked at the effect of uh, giving sucralose to mice at very high doses, doses much higher than what a normal person would see by just consuming food and drinks containing sucralose as a part of a normal diet. We measure many physiological responses, such as weight gain and other metabolic parameters, including the composition of the gut microbiome. And we didn't see any major effect in any of these physiological parameters until we tested a possible effect of sucrose on T-cells that are part of our immune system. And just to be clear, were you comparing mice with sweetener and mice without sweetener or rival sweeteners or sweeteners that are natural sugars? I mean, what was the comparison group here? So all of those things. We fed our mice with just water and we also fed our mice with water containing different sweeteners. What we found was that feeding mice with sucralose, but not, not the other sweeteners we tested, somewhat decreased their ability to properly activate T-cells. So T-cells are a major component of the immune response. So what in effect we saw is there was a dampening of the immune response. So as Fabio has just said, there was no effect of sucralose on any of the other physiological responses that we tested. Um, also, when we tested mice with these high doses of sucralose, we didn't see any alteration of the immune system under normal unstressed conditions. However, when we used models that would trigger an immune response that involves those T cells in mice, we did notice that the activation of the T cells was less effective. And importantly, all of those effects are reversible. So when we take away the sucralose, the immune response goes back to normal. Then we actually went on to test whether sucralose could have any therapeutic effect. And we looked again in mice of T-cell mediated autoimmunity. So that means autoimmunity caused by overactivation of T-cells. And so we looked in two models, a type 1 diabetes model and a colitis model. And we found that these very high doses of sucralose dampened the T-cell responses and reduced inflammation, which in the end was beneficial for the mouse. Now, obviously, we're not advocating, Karen, that someone with those diseases should take extremely high doses of sucralose to try to control their disease. But what it might highlight, if you can work out how it's having that effect, is, is a novel avenue therapeutically, presumably, isn't it? So do you know how the sucralose is affecting the T-cells in the way that it is? We spent a long time trying to answer that question. It was quite difficult to answer. So in our cell culture systems, we found that, in fact, exposing T-cells to sucralose um, prevented them from properly activating the signals that are required to mount a proper immune response. The way that that seemed to be happening is that the sucralose seemed to be affecting the uh, membrane dynamics of those cells, so preventing the normal clustering of the receptors that these cells have that allows them to signal downstream to properly activate the T-cell and thus activate the T-cell immune response. So Fabio, do you think that 
this is clinically relevant. It's very interesting academically, and at the doses you gave it, very, very high doses in the mice, you saw this effect. But does this have impacts for clinical medicine and also the consumption of these sorts of sweeteners for people more broadly? So we don't know whether we would see the same effect in humans, and we are now hoping to test whether high doses of sucrose could have a similar effect in people we really want to emphasize that our study do not support the idea that normal sucrose consumption is immunosuppressive. We need very high doses. Indeed, in our study, we use two different doses of sucrose, and both these doses are very, very, very high. And the lowest of the two doses already shows some decreased ability in modulating T-cell responses. That's probably prompt us to think that it's unlikely the normal sucrose consumption could have any effect. However, we hope that we can exploit this discovery to uh, design new therapeutic strategies, and we think that high doses of sucrose could potentially be useful in some dependent autoimmune disease. Maybe by adding sucralose to existing treatment, we can achieve a better therapeutic effect. The Crick Institute's Fabio Zarni and Karen Valston there, and they've just published those results in the journal Nature. Now, you've heard of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but researchers at Cambridge University have really pushed the boat out this time with the discovery that a rare mussel species squirts its young across a river so that fish mistake them for food and temporarily snap them up, but then end up nurturing them for the next few months instead. David Aldridge tells the story of Uniocrassus, the thick-shelled river mussel. We've stumbled on something absolutely incredible and really very surprising. A freshwater mussel known to be endangered, which during the springtime, the females of this species move to the margins of the rivers in which they live and start squirting jets of water about a metre long back into the river. And we've found that these jets of water carries the tiny little larvae of this freshwater mussel back into the river. When you say they move to the margins, these animals are almost beaching themselves. They're actually coming out of the water to send these jets through the air and then back into the water, aren't they? Because I've looked at the footage that you've published of them doing this. It's quite extraordinary. Yes, these mussels are sort of part exposed. They're just on the edge of the water and they suck up the water inside their shells and then they squeeze the shell together that squirts these jets in these beautiful loops back into the river. And what's happening is that um, the larvae of freshwater mussels have this amazing life history where the larvae are like miniature castanets. Um, They're about a third of a millimetre long and they have little hooks and spines on them and they have to attach to the gills or the fins of a host fish in order to complete their life cycle. And so what we found is that each of these jets carries about 50 or so larvae. And when those jets of water land in the river, they are perceived as food by the fish, which are the best hosts for these mussels. And instead of getting food, they actually get parasitized by the larvae. And this is a really neat system for the mussel because by using fish as a host, it allows them to travel around a river system. And obviously, mussels are very immobile. They sort of sit in the, in the mud at the bottom of the river. But fish can particularly help to transport these larvae upstream. How long are they in the fish for, then? Well, they can stay on the fish for um, about 
two or three weeks in some species and over a year in other species. In this particular mussel, it's probably they're probably on fish for um, a month or so before they drop off. And then it's down to the riverbed to spend the rest of their, their life maturing, becoming adults, and then they're doing this behaviour later. That's right. What we found with this mussel is that um, unlike most European mussels, this particular species, the thick-shelled river mussel, has a very narrow range of fish that it uses. That's probably one of the reasons why we've got this peculiar behaviour, that um, the mussel wants to make sure it gets its larvae on the right fish and not on the wrong fish, because otherwise it would waste a lot of its larvae. And by having this close association with a particular range of fish species, those fish share the same habitat as um, this particular mussel. So there's a greater chance of the juvenile mussels leaving the fish in suitable habitat. So we've got this sort of very close sort of co-evolution going on. There's a million questions going through my mind because it, it is such an extraordinary story. First is, how does a shellfish that doesn't have a brain know it's at the riverbank, get itself partly emerged from the water and do that at the right time of year? <laughs> I think your guess is as good as mine. It's totally mind-blowing that, yes, as you say, this is an organism without a, a head or a brain um, that, that knows to do this really quite specialised behaviour. My hunch is that they are responding to the sound of the water on the margins of the riverbed. So that's sort of acting as a cue for them to move to the margins. But we really don't know. I mean, there's some opportunities for great experiments to try and try and sort of really work out what's going on. Tell us then, how did you spot it? Were you just sitting on a riverbank counting mussels and you spotted one squirting? And then that made you wonder. <laughs> like many of the great pieces of scientific research, this emerged from a conversation over some beers at a conference. These mussels were living in a river in Poland, and my colleague mentioned that he'd observed this peculiar behaviour. And so a group of us said, let's go and spend a week in the um, Carpathian Mountains in Poland and see what's going on. But I don't think anything really prepared us for what we were going to see. Um, it, was, it was remarkable, just all these mussels all the way along the riverbed squirting away. And if you want to see that behaviour for yourself, look up Spurting Muscle Movie on YouTube. It's really worth a watch. David Aldridge there, and he's just published that discovery in the journal Ecology. Dizziness is a sensory paradox. As we get older, it's usually associated with feeling out of sorts and unwell. But when you're young, it's a state of mind that many children seem to actively strive to achieve, whether that's through playground equipment or theme park rides. Well, it turns out that reaching this altered state of mind is not unique to us humans. As researchers from the universities of Warwick and Birmingham have been finding out, they've been observing the thrill-seeking tendencies of gorillas by trawling through online videos and noting how many rotations over how long our fellow primates are spinning themselves. James Titko asked Marcus Perlman what gave him the idea that apes engaging in such behaviours might be significant in the first place. I guess uh, yeah, it was about a decade ago, even more than that, there was a viral video of uh, a gorilla named Zola who did some impressive spinning. And then Zola appeared again more recently, uh, maybe about five years ago in another viral video. Spinning behavior has been documented as a gesture that apes use. Um, but in the case of Zola, it looked like he was spinning around as part of a, a creative display. Um, and it looked like he was having a lot of fun. Uh, so that video made me start to wonder. And then my co-author, Adriano Lamera, 
made us start to wonder how widespread this behavior is. What is the range of variability in this kind of spinning behavior? And so we started looking, uh, searching YouTube and found lots of videos uh, of spinning apes. When I'm watching animal videos on YouTube, I'm told it's procrastinating. But when you're doing it, it's it's research, apparently. How's that fair? What did you infer then? I've seen the video you're referencing. And as you say, it's undeniable that uh, Zola's having a lot of fun. Yeah, it seems like you know, from what we've observed, they specifically engage in rope spinning, maybe because it's fun and stimulating. Uh, but certainly as a consequence, they, they get dizzy very often they will spin around for a minute or so kind of get let go of the rope stumble around fall and then jump up and, and do it again and repeat it's not clear whether the spinning is is stimulating and fun and then the dizziness is a a consequence of that or whether the dizziness is part of the stimulation and, and the fun and it does raise the psychological perhaps even philosophical questions as to why apes and by extension us why we feel the urge to engage in these mind-altering behaviors because it's something almost universal across humanity and reaching a, a different sort of consciousness yeah i mean the way i sort of think of it is that by spinning around and altering your perceptual experience and causing then subsequently the after you stop, the world continues to spin around. I think that sort of highlights the the subjectivity of our experience. And maybe that insight allows us to kind of break free out of our, you know, the blinders that we normally have in our in our daily experience. And is it significant then that these altered states of mind might be something that our evolutionary ancestors have passed down to us? I suppose the question is whether this has been observed in other animals other than observed in primates, do you know? I was searching around last night and uh, with my partner and we were looking looking at videos of animals doing research <laughs> and uh, and we found a grizzly bear on its side rolling down the hill uh, and it looked like it was having fun, whether you know can infer it was probably getting dizzy. We also found a panda bear rolling, but sort of somersaulting head first and rolling down a hill. So I don't think that I think the behavior probably extends to um, other mammals, at least. Now, the, the rope spinning in particular, I think, is probably something that is more special to primates, really gives the animal the leverage to spin fast and to spin for repeated rotations in a way that gets you dizzy, I think, in a way that it's harder to do without without the use of a rope. Marcus Perlman from the University of Birmingham there. And that's all we have time for this week. But next week, we are looking at the High Seas Treaty. That's the UN treaty that hopes to preserve 30% of the high seas by 2030 and turn the tide on the biodiversity crisis in the oceans. So what's involved in such an ambitious project and how realistic are its goals? The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? 
Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.